If I could ask everyone to take their seat, please. We'll get going. My name's Ed Crane. I'm president of the Cato Institute, and I'd like to welcome you to our uh, conference today on ending the global war on drugs. Uh, I want to start out by thanking the uh, Open Society Foundations and uh, Mr. Peter Lewis for their uh, generous support that made this conference uh, possible. Um, the Cato Institute is 35 years old, and during that period of time, we have always opposed the war on drugs, internationally and domestically. And we do it first and foremost for moral reasons. That is to say, it's not the government's business to tell you what you can and cannot put in your own body. That doesn't win the debate, unfortunately. Uh, it's compelling to us, and to a lot of people, really. But ultimately, there has, has to be uh, practical arguments for ending the war, and they are uh, everywhere these days. Um, <clears throat> The, the, the effect of the war on drugs, it seems to me, clearly uh, has been worse than alcohol prohibition. It is uh, extremely expensive, maybe $50 billion in the United States alone. Uh, it has uh, pernicious impacts on our culture. Um, uh, certainly there are massive civil liberties abuses that take place in all countries dealing with the war on drugs. Um, there is um, police corruption at all levels because of the war on drugs. Um, there are, there is created in the United States in particular, in Mexico and other countries, a criminal subculture uh, that is very unhealthy, that attracts uh, young people uh, looking to make a a quick buck, and, and uh, it affects their attitude toward the law in general. Uh, criminal subculture, a very strong one, exists in this country because of the war on drugs, and it could be ended simply by legalizing drugs. There is, uh, of course, uh, a, dis a distortion of uh, economies in the developing world as uh, so much in the way of resources goes into producing uh, poppies and uh, other sources of drugs, and um, that hurts the overall economies of these countries uh, while, while enriching a few people. Uh, I remember it also you know, affects the U.S. attitude toward developing countries, this attitude that we're in a war on drugs and therefore we're going to tell everybody else what to do. Some years back I was honored to have received an honorary Ph.D. from the Universidad Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala. Uh, and I flew down to Guatemala City, and that day, a big drug case that had been in the papers um, was settled, a uh, decision was made, and uh, the U.S. Embassy was not happy about it. Um, apparently, the U.S. Ambassador to Guatemala had been in the front row at the trial every day. And when the trial was over and the decision was made, uh, and it wasn't the decision the U.S. Embassy wanted, they had a press conference to denounce the, the whole process. And I spoke that night to the, to the university, and I said, you know, this is embarrassing. It's none of our business. I don't know whether the decision was right or wrong. I don't want the Guatemalan ambassador holding a press conference in the United States condemning our judicial system. But that's the way we, we treat these countries, that um, they're just pawns for us client states, as it were, uh, in the war on drugs, and their rights are, are just trampled. Fortunately, uh, we are now seeing a sea change in uh, the attitude uh, toward the uh, international war on drugs. I think for the first time since I've been involved in this, we see real traction among leaders, uh, important leaders uh, in the nation. Back in June, uh, the Global Commission on Drug Policy issued their findings, which really shook things up. And one of the uh, proponents, many of the Latin American, former and, and current Latin American presidents, um, including uh, Brazil's uh, President Cardoso, who will be speaking uh, here today, uh, had the courage to, to endorse uh, this uh, Global Commission, which is 
which is the first major step. I think this conference itself is a major step uh, in, in uh, moving forward. I'm sure most people in this room are aware of uh, the op-ed that the current president uh, of Colombia, Mr. Santos, uh, wrote just two days ago. And in this op-ed, he said, take away the violent profit that comes with drug trafficking. If that means legalizing and the world thinks that's the solution, I welcome it. I'm not against it. I might consider legalizing cocaine if there is a world consensus because it has affected us most here in Colombia. I would gladly participate in those discussions because we are the country that's still suffering most and have suffered most historically with the high consumption of the UK, the US, and Europe in general. So to have President Santos make those comments in very timely fashion given this conference is very encouraging. So I, I welcome you all. I, I admire you for being interested in this issue. It's a growing one, a very important one. Uh, with that, I will turn the proceedings over to my colleague, uh, Ian Vasquez. Thanks very much, uh, Ed. Uh, for decades, uh, Washington has been leading an increasingly aggressive uh, hemispheric war on drugs that has come at a high cost uh, to its neighbors, uh, but that has not stopped drugs from being readily available here in the United States. Instead, what we've seen are significant political and social costs in those countries, and uh, those uh, results have spread from country to country. Drug war victories are at best temporary, and they often merely just displace uh, the illicit trade from one place to another, from one country to another. That situation led the late uh, Nobel laureate Milton Friedman to observe many years ago that as a nation we have been destroying foreign countries because we cannot enforce our own laws, unquote. And nowhere, uh, I think, is the harm of prohibition more apparent today uh, than in Mexico a country that has seen a dramatic rise in violence with more than 40,000 drug uh, killings uh, since President Calderon uh, decided to wage an all-out war on the cartels beginning at the end of 2006. Journalists and politicians have been intimidated and killed. Newspapers have stopped reporting entirely on the activities of, of cartels, some newspapers have. Cities have become militarized. Corruption has spread uh, throughout police departments and to different levels of federal and local government. It is ironic uh, that Mexico is prosecuting a, a war on drugs at a time when public opinion in the United States is changing uh, to a great degree and it's becoming increasingly critical of the drug war here. A recent Gallup poll uh, found that 50% of Americans support the legalization of marijuana now, and that's up from 12% in 1969 and about 25% in the mid-90s. 70% of Americans support the use of medical marijuana, and 16 states plus Washington, D.C. have already legalized such use. I think that one of the reasons why uh, there has been this change is not just the failure of the drug war here in the United States and its high costs in terms of civil uh, liberties and increased crime. I think that Mexico has a, uh, has a lot to do with it. It's playing a large role in changing uh, perceptions in the United States. Mexico, after all, is not a faraway country like Bolivia or Peru. It's not an abstract concept in the minds of, of Americans. Americans have a great affinity towards Mexicans and they can identify with, uh, with Mexico. And of course, uh, Mexico is one of the most important relationships that the United States has with any country. So Mexico is now on display as Exhibit A uh, for the whole world and for Americans on the effectiveness of the drug war. And Americans are seeing violence spilling over the border. And a drug war that is working at cross purposes with the very important Mexican and uh, U.S. goals uh, of promoting democracy and civil society. Goals, I should add, that Mexicans have worked so hard at uh, to achieve over the past several decades. The debate about the drug war in Mexico has enormous consequences, not just for Mexico, but also for the United States and thus for the world. And there is perhaps no one 
uh, in Mexico who has done more than our speaker this morning, Jorge Castañeda, to think carefully about uh, the drug trafficking problem there and to change the debate such that an increasing number of Mexicans and people around the world recognize that Mexico has other, better alternatives than the current approach. As a regular columnist for Newsweek International and the Mexican Daily Reforma, and through his frequent appearances in, in, on television uh, and elsewhere, uh, Jorge Castañeda has forcefully made the case for a rethink of drug policy. His co-authored book, El Narco, which I highly recommend to anybody who reads Spanish, is an elegant statement on the futility of the drug war in Mexico. Jorge Castañeda was the foreign minister of, of his country from the year 2000 to 2003. He is a global distinguished professor of politics in Latin American and Caribbean studies at New York University. And he is the author of several books on Mexican economics, politics, and culture that make him one of the leading voices in the effort to create a modern Mexico. Please help me welcome Jorge Castañeda. Thank you, Ian. Uh, it's uh, an honor to be here, once, not once again here at the Cato Institute, but with the Cato Institute. Mr. Crane, thank you for having me here, and thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts once again with you on this issue. What I'd like to do very quickly is to go through <clears throat> um, three points regarding this drug situation in Mexico, the way it started, the costs, and the alternatives to leave as much time as possible for a discussion um, <clears throat> along on these issues. Um, I want to spend a few minutes on the beginnings because um, I think if we don't go back to why we got into this mess, it's very difficult to understand how to get out of it. I know a lot of my colleagues in Mexico and in the United States say, well, okay, whatever reasons President Calderon had for getting into this uh, war, the fact is now we're in it and we have to do something about it. Yes, but it's not idle, it's not useless to go back and see to what extent this war was declared almost exactly five years ago, as we speak, um, <clears throat> on false premises. First false premise, violence in Mexico had been increasing, something had to be done about it. Absolutely false, violence in Mexico had been declining. By any indicator, mainly the most important and reliable one, willful homicides per 100,000 inhabitants from the early 90s through 2007, violence in Mexico had been declining from around 20-odd willful homicides per year to under eight willful homicides per year in 2006 and 7, which is still higher than the United States, but one-third of Brazil, one-tenth of what Colombia had in its worst years, and one-third of what we have today. Violence in Mexico had been declining for 20 years and then spiked from 2007 onward, we will close this year, 2011, at Brazilian levels. Uh, I have, obviously, the greatest of admiration for my uh, friends from Brazil, but, you know, we were at a third of where they are now, and now we're back where they are. Second, consumption in Mexico had been rising. Mexico had shifted from being a transit country to a country of consumption. Something had to be done about this. Absolutely false. Mexico has among the lowest rates of consumption of drugs in Latin America, much lower than the Central Americans, much lower than Brazil, much lower than Colombia, even lower than places like Chile and Uruguay. And the increases, while very significant in purely statistical terms, were from such a low baseline that they were insignificant. Mexico is not a market for drugs for a very simple reason. You have to be crazy if you are a trafficker if you've got the biggest, richest market in the world right next door to sell your junk in Mexico. And the drug traffickers are not crazy. They're very intelligent, sophisticated businessmen. This is not the case in Bolivia. In Bolivia, you have Brazil, you have Chile, you have other places. If you already got the stuff into Mexico, why in the world would you want to peddle it there if you can peddle it across the border at 10 to 15 times the price. There are, is no sign of any significant increase in drug consumption in Mexico over the past 15 years. It has remained stable and at very low levels. Third, 
Well, yes, but the drug cartels had become so powerful that they were taking over the country. This is more difficult to gauge. How do you know when part of the country has been taken over by the drug cartels? Well, probably the only way to know is when you take it back from them and then you say, this used to be in the hands of the cartels, the state of whatever, I'm taking it back and I have now arrested or killed or thrown in jail, not the drug traffickers, those are easy, so to speak, but the governor, the mayors, the senators, the congressmen, the police chiefs, etc., etc., etc. Well, this has not happened in one single state in Mexico in five years under President Calderón. Not one governor, ex-governor, significant mayor of a significant city, congressman, senator, nobody has been thrown in jail for this type of capture. Police people have been thrown in jail and then freed, by the way, but that's a different story. Even in Michoacán, when he, tried, when he arrested 30 mayors, his home state, and where the war began five years ago, he, the authorities had to free the 30 arrested mayors because they had no case against them. So the f war was declared on false premises. None of the premises were true. Now, why was it declared? I think for very simple political reasons. I voted for President Calderon. I called on people to vote for him. I supported his efforts after the election to take office because I thought he had won, and I thought he won the election cleanly by 0.56%. Granted, I mean, this was not a landslide, to put it mildly. But he won the election. I think it was essentially a clean election. But he decided that, like many Mexican presidents before him, he had to do something spectacular on taking office in order to consolidate himself and legitimize himself in a highly questioned and controversial election. And he decided for political reasons that what he was going to do was send the army into Michoacán, a couple of other states, do the job, and then get out. Didn't work out that way. It was declared for political reasons, not for drug-related reasons. This is important because it means that a lot of, if the premises were false then, they're still false now, which means if we change strategies and find an alternative, we don't have to address these causes of the war. We have to address other causes and other effects of the war. Rapidly, the costs. Ian had mentioned some, uh, by the way, um, on one of these counts uh, on the human rights front, uh, Human Rights Watch just uh, issued a major report last uh, week in Mexico City. Jose Miguel Vivanco, who is with us, was there together with Ken Roth. Uh, it was a report on the human rights disaster that has befallen Mexico over the last five years. What are the costs? So far, we have somewhere around 45,000 deaths drug war-related deaths since President Calderón took office. By the time he leaves office, if current trends continue without any increase but without any decrease, it'll be around 55,000 deaths by the time he leaves. To give you an idea for those of you who are uh, very young, um, this is about the same number of Americans who died in Vietnam. In a country, of course, one-third the population, just so you have roughly an idea. Secondly, <clears throat> we will have a human rights situation in Mexico where the number of incidents of torture, extrajudicial executions, and disappeared, forced disappearances will have increased exponentially as documented by Mexican and international uh, watchdog groups. And as increasingly acknowledged by the government itself as something which they're trying to fix, which they're working on, which they want to punish, which they want to limit, but they are increasingly not even denying that this is taking place. The way this Human Rights Watch report was received by President Calderon and his cabinet last week shows that the discussion is much more about what to do than whether it's true or not. This in a country which had had huge human rights problems over the previous 30, 40, 50 years, but where the human rights situation had been significantly improving under Presidents Cedillo and Fox of two different parties, by the way. Thirdly, we have suffered a terrible devastation of Mexico's image in the world. Now, for some countries, this is more important than for others. I always have a discussion with my Brazilian friends who say, you Mexicans are 
not as brave as we are. We, don't, we ask the Americans for visas because they ask us for visas, and you Mexicans don't do that. And I tell my Brazilian friends, you're absolutely right, because you receive 600,000 American tourists a year, and we receive 25 million. And we can't afford to do without the 25 million, and you can't afford to do without the 600,000. Okay, well, for Mexico, a terrible image in the world, a country that depends so much on tourism, is a big deal. It's a big, big problem. It's not necessarily a problem for other countries. For us, it is. If you have scenes like the ones you all see on television and newspapers everywhere in the United States all day long about people having, being beheaded, about people being hung from bridges, about people being executed in the streets, and your single most important employer is the tourism industry, you have a problem. And we have a big, big problem because of that. And finally, money. Mexico's a big country, it's a rich country. Um, <clears throat> our, our budget this year will be a budget of roughly $320 billion. This is not Nicaragua, it's not Bolivia, but still we've spent a lot of money on this question. It'll be by the end of President Calderon's term around $60 billion in addition to what we spent normally on security and on the army, which is a significant amount of money for a country of our GDP of our size. We don't have that money to go round. So if you put all of this together, you can see the costs of this war have been immense. The results, they are really not very clear. They are very difficult to see. We know because the government publishes data on this. For example, that eradication and <coughs> seizures of marijuana and heroin, the drugs we produce in Mexico, are way down. We are seizing less marijuana and less heroin today in Mexico than 10 years ago. Significantly less, not a little bit less. On the cocaine front, it's hard to say because it all comes from the south, from Colombia basically, through Central America and to the United States. Apparently, there may have been a small drop in the amount of cocaine transiting through Mexico and into the United States. But if there had been a very significant drop, you would see it reflected in the price of cocaine in the streets in New York, and you, or Washington, by the way, or DC. And unless somebody knows differently, uh, that spike has not taken place. There has been a slight increase in price, but no tremendous spike reflecting a tremendous drop of supply over the past five or six years. Crystal meth and other designer drugs, some of which we produce in Mexico with Chinese inputs, yes, maybe there's been a drop, but the results there are not significant. The results in terms of are we taking back territory that the narcos had? Well, if they had the territory, maybe we're taking some of it back, but it's not clear that they had it. I have a very uh, absurd discussion the last couple of days in Mexico. Um, about the governor's elections in the state of Michoacán, which is President Calderón's home state, as I said, the state he first sent the army into, and a state that has been plagued traditionally, both by violence and by mainly marijuana cultivation, and there's some important drug cartels working in Michoacán. President Calderón's sister, Luisa María Calderón, was the pan candidate for governor. And although she thought she was going to win by a very small margin, and polls seem to indicate that she might win. She, in fact, did not win. Apparently, she lost by two or three points to the PRI candidate. And she has now begun to say, since this began Sunday night when the results were published, the day before last night, that organized crime um, stole the election from her. Now, there's two problems with that kind of a statement. The first is she only figured that out Sunday night not during the previous five months of campaigning, difficult to believe. But more importantly, what she is suggesting, which by the way may be true, she is suggesting that the cartels in Michoacán operate as a single unified rational subject, which is quite possible. You know, they sat down somewhere in uh, Apatzingán, in Uruapan, 
couple of months ago. They looked over the three candidates, the PRD, the PRI, and the PAN candidate. They studied their proposals, their programs, their planks, their teams of people who work with them, their history, their personal biographies, and they reached the conclusion that the candidate that was most in their interest was the PRI candidate, Fausto Vallejo. Let's suppose that's true. And then they decided to support him and make life miserable for Ms. Calderon and for the left-wing candidate, and that's why the PRI candidate won. Okay, let's, let's suppose all of that happened. And it's not impossible, by the way. What is incompatible with this is that the cartels are a bunch of nuts who have killed each other, assassinated uh, 45,000 Mexicans in wars between them, totally irrational 15-year-old kids who do not know what they're doing because now they have been fragmented and atomized and pulverized by the war on drugs to the extent that now all we have to deal with are a bunch of you know, hundreds of little cartels all over the country who are meaningless, irrational, and purely violent. The two things cannot be true at the same time. And this is where we have a, a more significant conceptual problem. What can be done about all of this very quickly? First, I think that the army has to be pulled back, sent back to the barracks, and used only exceptionally, only very, very exceptionally, when there is a very critical situation with very clear <coughs> uh, instructions and indications of how many troops will be sent, how long they will be there, and when they will be brought back. And that the definition of a crisis be very specific. Secondly, we have to build up a national police force, which we have not built up really under President Calderon. He's made an effort, like Fox and Cedillo before him also made an effort, but the effort is insufficient. As of today, we were with the head of the police last week with, uh, with Mr. Vivanco and Mr. Roth, and we went through the numbers with them. They've got about <coughs> 25,000 boots on the ground the federal police that they can send in. This is in a country of 115 million inhabitants, 25,000 police. The Colombian National Police has 165,000 uh, full-fledged police members in a country two and a half times less populated than Mexico. If we wanted to have the equivalent in Mexico, we would need 400,000 boots on the ground of the federal police, given that the municipal police are useless at best, at best. So we're, we have to go from 22,000, 25,000 to 100, 150,000 very quickly. This takes a lot of money, some time, and a lot of help, a lot of support. We could get the support from all sorts of places, but there's only one place we're actually going to get it. That's here. And we have to think in Mexico very seriously about how we want to do this whether we want to send the, the 100,000 Mexican police to be trained here, or we want to have a couple of thousand American advisors training them there. Politically, it's impossible to have the advisors go to Mexico. Economically, it's impossible to have the Mexican police come here. So what do you do? You have a problem. We need to concentrate all our efforts, as uh, Mark Kleinman has said in a recent book and now in an article in Foreign Affairs last issue, on combating violence and crime that affect people. N kidnappings, extortion, homicide, theft, homes, cars, etc. instead of concentrating on the drug issue. The drugs do not harm Mexico. Whether they harm Americans or not is an issue Americans have to decide. And then how Americans want to combat the harm that the drugs do to American society if the drugs do that harm to American society. That is a U.S. discussion. It is not our discussion and it is not our business. It makes absolutely no sense for us to put up 50,000 body bags to stop drugs from entering the United States, which once they enter the United States are de facto or de jure legally consumed. It makes absolutely no sense. And I co congratulate, like Mr. Crane before me, Presidents Cardoso and Cedillo and Gaviria, as well as their other co colleagues now on the Global Commission, for making this point. If we concentrate the resources we have in fighting violence, we can bring violence back down to the levels we had in the year 2006, 2007, and we can begin 
to try to address the third issue, the third part of the alternative, which is how to do all of this without encouraging the culture of illegality, which in Mexico has plagued us now for four to five hundred years, probably since even before the Spanish arrived. We were already in trouble on that, and they made things worse. The Spanish tend to do that. We, which is why I think it's very important that the next Mexican government, and President Calderon has begun to make little, sort of putting his toe in the water a little bit on this. The next Mexican government has to be very clear on the question of legalization. Starting with marijuana, but not necessarily limiting it to marijuana. Why? Well, the debate in Mexico, very briefly, as you know, is similar to the one in Colombia. We can't do it alone. If the Americans don't do it, we can't do it. Why? Because it won't have any impact, because prices are set in the U.S., not in Mexico. Legalizing just in Mexico will not really reduce the cartel's profits, because the cartel's profits come from the illegal, illicit nature of the business in the U.S. If the U.S. doesn't do it and Mexico does do it, all we'll do is get in trouble with the Americans and not really make a dent in the cartel's finances. That may or may not be true. It's hard. I, I have my doubts about that because we're really talking about things we don't know. The estimates of the percentage of marijuana in the drug cartel's profits range from 8 or 9 percent to 60 percent, depending on who you listen to, which means nobody knows what they're talking about. And for good reason. There is no way really of knowing. You can't go and see their tax returns. They may have them, but they don't let you see them. So it's very complicated to figure all of this out. What we do know is that Mexico, together with Colombia, perhaps one day with Brazil, Peru, should make advocacy of legalization in the United States its main task in foreign policy. Maybe we can't do it alone, but we certainly have, Mexico today certainly has the moral authority, and President Santos of Colombia certainly has the moral authority to come to the United States and say, look guys, we did this for 40 years, like you have. We've put up 50,000 bodies. We've taken, we've spent a fortune. We've destroyed our image in the world. We've knocked down tourism. We've done ev we have done everything you can humanly do, and it hasn't worked. So we have to do something else. So I say it's very important, of course, for former presidents with the prestige of President Cardoso and his colleagues to do this, but it's even more important for standing presidents, sitting presidents, to do so, especially the president of Mexico and President Santos of Colombia today, who for personal reasons have the prestige, the moral authority to do this. I think if we worked on these three lines, combating violence, not drug trafficking, building a national police and bringing the army back, and fighting for legalization, even if we can't do it overnight on all drugs, we have the beginning of an alternative policy that can work. And I'll end with a stupid Jewish joke from New York, but it's very important if you look at this question here of, is this alternative viable? You know, how's your wife compared to whom? Okay, well, how viable is this alternative compared to what we're doing, compared to the 50,000 deaths, compared to the $60 billion, compared to the human rights violations, compared to the devastation of Mexico's image abroad? I think it's a viable strategy that should be tried. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Jorge. We have time for some questions. Uh, so if you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come to you. And please uh, say your name and identify your affiliation. I guess we will take one right up in front here, right here. Thank you, Jorge, for, that, for those remarks. I'm Mary O'Grady from the Wall Street Journal. Um, <clears throat> you said in the beginning of your talk, I think I understood you to say that um, the drug trafficking that was coming through Mexico prior to when Calderon um, started the war was not, uh, you said it was not violent, but were you also saying that it wasn't uh, threatening the um, authority of the state? Because my impression has always been that these guys began to sort of threaten, they weren't just passing through, they were threatening the 
authority that the state had to collect taxes, to enforce the law, they, they, they started to take over turf. And that was the justification for uh, confronting them. And could you just clarify uh, whether, that, whether you think that's true or not? I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, Mary, in the sense that of the three, what I consider to be the three false premises, violence, consumption, and loss of control or territory, the third one is the only one that has some possibilities of being true. It also is very difficult to gauge, to measure. How do you know if they were taking over the state and that they had taken so much over that you had to do something about it and now that you've made progress in taking it back? My impression is that what was happening on the ground in 2005, 2006, 2007 in states like Sinaloa, Durango, Chihuahua, Baja California, et cetera, was no different than what had been happening the previous 20 years since the mid-80s when the South Florida route was cut off. The real breaking point, the tipping point, was President, Vice President Bush Sr.'s success in the South Florida Drug Enforcement Task Force, roughly 1985, in cutting off the route from Colombia through the Caribbean, Cuba, to Florida. And then in 1989, when Fidel Castro shuts down the Cuban connection and shoots Ochoa and Tony de la Guardia and executes them. When that happens, then they start doing all of this through Mexico. The cartels do get stronger, unquestionably, but they get stronger in the 80s and 90s. We had been living with this through 2005, 2006, without any tax collection did not drop or increase anywhere in Mexico because of the drug cartels. It's lousy because we have lousy tax take in Mexico, and we always had, because Mexicans don't like to pay taxes like everybody else. Nobody likes to pay taxes, but we actually get away with not paying them. <laughs> Others don't. So I just can't see the evidence of all of this. It may be true, but I haven't seen any evidence at the time or retrospectively to prove that this is true. And I think the burden of proof now lies with the government, no longer with the critics. I don't have to prove that this was not true. They have to prove that it was true. Take a question in, in the front row. I would like to ask you three very specific questions related to the last part. Could you identify part. yourself, please? Sorry? Could you identify yourself, Miguel please? Miguel Darcy from Brazil. Uh, three questions about the last part, which is extremely important, this call for legalization emanating from countries like uh, Mexico and Colombia. <laughs> Next year, there will be presidential elections in Mexico. So my questions are, to what extent the issue is at the center of the presidential campaign? Are people talking? Public opinion is debating this issue. Second question, what are the stand of the leading candidates for the presidency? And thirdly, in your view, would there be any possibility of President Calderon, as part of his legacy, still take a stand in favor, a public stand in favor of legalization, even if that was his farewell speech after leaving the presidency? Well, uh, um, Miguel, you, you, I mean, the three points are, 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 are central. Is it an issue? No, legalization is not an issue. The drug war is an issue. It is not a central issue in the campaign because the candidates, it's sec your second question, are still scared of disagreeing with Calderon and being portrayed as accomplices of the cartels, particularly the PRI candidate who is the leading candidate who was in Washington just yesterday, and from what I heard, did not address the security or drug cartel issue at all. Why? Because they're scared of having, among others, the Americans say, look, watch out, the PRI is coming back and they will cut a deal with the cartels like they did before. And President Calderon, in fact, accused them of this in an interview in the New York Times just a month ago. So it's very difficult for them to bring up the issue and very difficult for them to take a stand. When some of them were asked last year, before Proposition 19 in California, what they would do if marijuana was fully legalized in California, this was before the vote, several of them said, if that were to happen, then we would have to legalize in Mexico. 
This was not the case for Peña Nieto. It was for another PRI candidate, Beltrones. It was for one of the PAN candidates, uh, Santiago Krill, and I think for the mayor of Mexico City, Marcelo Ebrard. Unfortunately, none of those three are going to be on the ballot. They all lost. Not sure because of this, but they did lose. And finally, on President Calderon. He has been making statements the last two or three months whereby he says that if the United States does not reduce consumption and the flow of arms south, which is a fact, it's the if is redundant, it's the if is totally useless, um, then we should seek market alternatives to reduce the profits made by the cartels. Well, I mean, in real English, that's, or Spanish or Portuguese, that's uh, legalization, even in Chinese, I guess. I don't know how you say it, but I imagine <laughs> that it means the same thing. So he is moving in that direction. But, and if the way the Mexican system and the way many systems work in the democracy and even in the authoritarian system, he should make unpopular, difficult decisions before he leaves to open up the road for his successor do the things that have to be done and that are terribly unpopular and that incoming presidents don't want to do, even in a country where we don't have re-election, he should do them. Some presidents in Mexico have done this before. I know in Brazil, President Cardoso did some of these things during the inter, el interregno. Uh, Calderón could do this, but he needs people to sit down with him and convince him to do it. He is very lonely. He is not listening to anybody in his entourage on these issues. And I think the only type of people who could have influence on him, people like President Cardoso, like people from the United States, people like Paul Volcker, who's worked together with uh, in the Global Commission, people like Kofi Annan. Now I understand Prime Minister Papandreou of Greece uh, has some free time. On, uh, he, he, can, he can participate more actively in on the Global Commission, I've heard. Um, I think it would be very important for people like these that I've mentioned and many others to sit down with President Calderon and say, look, drink the Kool-Aid. This is what you need to do. Take a question in the aisle there, please. Ashim Hathaway, DC. Uh, my question, the thing that doesn't ever seem to get mentioned is the real wild card, which is the cartels themselves. Taking into consideration if there was a level of legalization in California that led to legalization in Mexico, what would guarantee that the, the types of leaders who run these cartels now, people who have been born into this warlike structure, would actually ramp down the violence or learn to shift their business into something a little bit more competitive? Well, it's two different things. First of all, they, they, if you legalize it, you don't necessarily want them to shift their business into something more competitive. As a matter of fact, I think that uh, Mexican marijuana production could be highly competitive if it were legal. So it's not a question of them doing something else. It's a question of what they're doing to become legal. Now, uh, would that bring the violence down? Of course there's no guarantee. And maybe they would move into other activities. Uh, but. Again, I have to come back to where we were in 2006. Kidnappings were down, extortion was down, willful homicides were down. Mexico was not a violent country. And I, I don't see the spike in demand here or in demand in Mexico, which all of a sudden in five years turned a country that wasn't violent into a very violent one. What happened? What happened was the war, not some external a factor to the, to the domestic process. I think what would probably happen if we legalized at least marijuana in Mexico and something along those lines happened in the US in one way or another, probably what would happen is that the amount of money they have available to them to buy arms, to hire sicarios, to corrupt officials would come down, would be reduced. Would it be eliminated? No. But they would have less money and they would do less of the stuff that they do. And I think that would be a good thing at, very small, at a very small cost for Mexico. Again, especially depending on how the U.S. would react. This is why it would be so important for people like Calderon and Santos to speak to President Obama on this business. Say, what would you do if we legalized? 
What would you say? What would you do? What would, what the, what would the president's reaction is? Don't tell me about American public opinion. I can hire a polling firm to find that out. I don't need you for that. I need to know what the president of the United States would do if you were going, if we legalized. I think that's the question they should ask him. Okay. Uh, question over here. Jorge, uh, Paulo Sotero from the Wilson Center. Uh, Jorge, I would like to continue on this point that you just made. Uh, we know that the United States obviously is in a very difficult fiscal situation, does not have money to spend, on, especially on things that don't work, as the war on drugs. Uh, we know also that uh, marijuana, at least, has been partially legalized through the medical marijuana route. You have contacts, so you talk to policymakers here. What is your assessment on how this debate, considering those two factors, could evolve in the United States? Well, Paulo, I, I really only I have contacts only with my friends in the Drug Policy Alliance and people like that, and I don't think that they're going to be running uh, U.S. drug policy. So, uh, what I what I think on this question is that. Um, the Obama administration seems to have shifted course in recent months, and its initial stance, which was to let the states do what they want, establish some form of medical marijuana legalization, both in D.C. and in the Veterans Administration's hospitals, which is a presidential decision, and a few other uh, sort of indicators of presidential uh, federal presidential decisions have now been turned around and the DEA either on its own or on instructions from the Justice Department is going into the states, going into the dispensaries and trying to shut them down and prosecute people uh, using medical marijuana. So I think there's been a, both a shift and an ambiguity uh, in, in Obama's policy. I also think that this I mean, I, this may not be the best place to say this, but still, I think this is a thinking man's president. This is a guy you can talk to. This is a guy who understands the complexities of something like this, and I'm not sure others would necessarily do that. I think that this is someone that President Cardoso can sit down and speak to him and say, look, we, we all understand political necessities. We've all been presidents or are presidents, and we all got elected, and we know about these things. That's not the issue. The issue is first the substance. Let's, get, let's agree on the substance, and then we'll see what we can do about it. But I don't know if that dialogue has taken place yet with President Obama. I'm relatively certain that he is someone that you can engage in such a dialogue, but I don't know if you and your colleagues, President Cardoso, have been able to do this. I think it would really be high time, if I may respectfully suggest, that you do have, try to do it, because it can't be that a fellow who has lived the life he has lived and who has read what he has read and lived now in the president, he's got to know the, this is not somebody who grew up in the favelas. I mean, we have time for at least uh, one more question. We'll take one right up front. Good morning. I'm R.E. Branch from Dallas, Texas. I'm a medical doctor. Uh, I'm, I'm new to the Cato Institute. I just had a question uh, as to if we would have a chance to discuss a subject that's near and dear to my heart. It's reflected in this book entitled The Criminalization of Medicine. It has to do with uh, creative ways that the Drug Enforcement Administration has infiltrated the practice of medicine. Uh, Ron Paul, the presidential candidate, has written on the war on drugs being a war on doctors. And I wonder um, whether the proper time, at, just looking at your schedule, the proper time for this to be brought up for discussion. Ma maybe in another, yeah, maybe in another panel. Okay, thanks. We'll take, uh, we'll take another question and, and that will probably be the last one right over there, please. Uh, yes, my name is uh, Richard Kennedy. I'm a retired CIA economic analyst. Uh, who actually began studying economics in Mexico City at the University of the Americas. Uh, American economists who've written about drug policy are overwhelmingly opposed to it and believe we should move in the direction of legalization. I'm just wondering, do you know if there are any Mexican economists who have uh, written about this issue? It's, it's, a, it's a very good point. And now that you mention it, there are certainly no 
very well-known, distinguished Mexican trained economists who have publicly uh, come out on this issue. And it's part of the problem, uh, the question raised by, by Miguel, uh, which is that the debate is not taking place in Mexico. It is still not a debate that is really taking place, either on economic grounds, on security grounds, on international grounds, on moral or ethical grounds. It is not really taking place. And so although you have very distinguished economists in Mexico, people who have had very high-level government jobs, uh, finance ministers, former central bank governors, uh, who are very eminently qualified and who could perhaps give opinions on the economics of legalization and the economics of the drug war, they aren't doing it because they're still very deferential to the presidential system in Mexico, because they are very wary of being accused of being complices of the drug cartels. You have to understand that for people like pres former President Cedillo and Fox, who have both been very vocal on this issue, I think you'll be seeing a, a video message Fox. from President Fox later, and President Cedillo has been working with President Cardoso very closely on this. Uh, my case is similar, although obviously at a lower level. Um, there's always the threat, the implicit threat, of being accused of working for the cartels. What you're doing is, les están haciendo el caldo gordo a los carteles. You're carrying the cartels dirty water for them. And so a lot of people who have something to lose, this is not President Cedillo's case, not President Fox's case, and not my case, people who do have something to lose, their, maybe their pension at the central bank or whatever, um, they don't want to tackle this problem because it's, and you know, uh, Mexican presidents, even democratic presidents like Cedillo, like Fox, like Calderon, have uh, la mano pesada. They have, have, they're heavy handed every now and then in the way they deal with critics, with opposition figures, etc. They're still used, the, 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 you know, the, the, it's in our DNA. It's not something that you just have an election and it's over with. It's in the DNA and it's difficult to get over. Plus the fact that you have the church. And the church is a real problem in Mexico, a real issue. Uh, the church was one of the few instances in Mexico that openly criticized the Human Rights Watch report last week. The Catholic Church remains powerful and is very vocal on these things. And there's the Americans. I mean, you know, again, we come back to the tourists in Brazil. Um, in Mexico, to be directly, explicitly critical, if you were in Mexico working for the people you were working for, um, you know that it's not always easy to take on the United States and the U.S. government from Mexico. Uh, if they get upset at you, they can make life very complicated for you in many, very many ways. This is not what has happened under Presidents Clinton or Bush or uh, Obama, but it used to happen and it can happen again. And uh, so if you add up all of this, you see that there's very good reasons for many people in Mexico to avoid this debate. And this is partly why the debate is not taking place and why it's so difficult to force it onto the front pages of the papers or the TV shows or, or the, the public space. Thank you, Jorge. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but please uh, join me in thanking Jorge Castaneda for his comments. And I'd like to call the next panel up uh, to the podium, please, and we'll begin right away.